Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. How can research institutes and universities tackle the threats of cybercrime and espionage? In this second of our two-part series looking at cybersecurity in universities and research, we hear how ransomware has changed the game for the sector and how state-sponsored actors continue to probe defences, looking for valuable intellectual property. Our guests in this episode are Ali Mellon, an analyst covering security and risk at Forrester and who was previously an academic researcher at MIT and Mark Wantling, the CIO at Salford University in the UK. We started by asking Ms. Mellon why research institutions are coming under increasing and unwelcome attention in cyberspace. Especially given the important work research institutions are doing, nation states and cyber criminals alike are targeting them more and more. A great example of this was when the COVID vaccine was being developed and nation state attackers immediately went after these research and pharmaceutical companies. In the case of nation state attackers, they're trying to target universities and research organizations that have intellectual property they want to steal. The Chinese government, for example, is notorious for finding ways to access and steal intellectual property. Classically, this was done physically with actual spies on site for these operations. But now, attacking over the internet presents a much more direct way to access this information from anywhere. Cyber criminals, on the other hand, seem to target research and education organizations at a much more regular cadence and in a much less targeted way. For example, according to the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, Threat actors targeting educational services are really motivated by financial gain, which is a top priority for cyber criminals. They most often want to get in, pose as someone legitimate to get a wire transfer sent to them directly, or if they can't succeed at that, deploy ransomware. So that's actually a really quite a mundane type of attack. They're not trying to steal some incredibly valuable state secrets. They just want dollars. Absolutely. The nation state attackers have a very different motive. And we see that in many cases, nation state attackers are using much more advanced techniques. They're not necessarily looking to cause business disruption, but they are looking to steal that very vital information so they can either use it for their own purposes or um, be able to be one step ahead of other nation states. Whereas cyber criminals, ultimately, they're really just looking to make some money. And this is just another means to that end. Why, though, are either criminal groups or nation states targeting these sectors in particular? Are they seeing there's the potential to get great rewards from them? Or is it perhaps that they're not as well protected, especially in the academic and non-commercial spheres, not as well protected as commercial companies? There are a couple of core challenges, and we can start with the with the cyber criminal perspective. Um, research in- institutions and educational organizations are very easy for attackers to target. There's this 
huge flux of new students, especially in education every year, which means they not only have to provision those students with access to things like Wi-Fi accounts, et cetera, but also they have to deprovision thousands of students every year, those that are graduating. At a research institution, this might be on a, on a lower level, but those fluctuations really give an opportunity for cyber criminals to really work into the confusion, any confusion that might be going on around when new students are coming in, when old students are leaving, and it gives them room to attack much easier, in particular to use uh, social engineering tactics to target some of these institutions. So that's on, on one side of it. On the other side, on the nation state side, it really depends on the nation state's goals. One of the reasons that COVID vaccines were such a great example of this is because there was a time, of course, we all remember (laughs) just a short year ago when every nation wanted to be able to make the first vaccine. It was a point of pride for many nations. Um, And so having access to the most recent vaccine research was critical to that effort. And for many organi- um, for many nation states felt like it could give them the head start that they were looking for, or just make sure that they were at the cutting edge of vaccine research. So it's very dependent on the attacker's motives, but they do find that in the case of nation states, really it's just that they have information that the nation state wants. And in the case of educational institutions and cyber criminals, it's really just that they're an easier target because there's so much constant change going on in universities. And that change is always going to be difficult for IT security teams and for CIOs to manage. Uh, but you know, you've alluded to you've alluded to their ransomware and you know, fairly simple wire transfer fraud type of attacks. Uh, Are we seeing more complex attacks being deployed against the sector? Or or is it the case that oftentimes it is fairly basic cyber hygiene that is the problem? So these are well-established, well-known vulnerabilities that for whatever reason are not being patched or blocked. It of course depends. Um, As I mentioned, nation states tend to take a much more nuanced and sophisticated approach. But Really, it does, in a lot of cases, come down to these very simple, um, basic cyber hygiene things that are just, they're difficult to manage for any enterprise, let alone an organization that has to deal with that many people. The first and most obvious is, of course, budget constraints. IT teams and security teams are rarely given more funds than they need, and even enough funds to support the initiatives that they want to do. (laughs) But the... The second is that constant change that universities face where they have to provision, deprovision students every year. And that leads to the IT side of the house having to do a lot of work that is not only related to, but also depends on security. And if you put that into the context of all the other very unique situations security teams have to deal with in an educational environment, like legacy computers, unmanaged devices everywhere with every student, um, a sprawling on-site and remote campus, security teams have a very large challenge ahead of them. Specifically with regards to research teams as well, Oftentimes you see research teams spinning up a database to store some important information, but a lot of times these actually are using the default configurations. And the problem with that is that they typically have access to the internet 
that they don't necessarily want to give. (laughs) And so if you don't follow security best practices when establishing things like these databases, then you can share that information on the internet without even knowing it. And of course, the average researcher is not a security expert unless they're in that field. They don't necessarily know the appropriate steps to follow when doing this, or or perhaps they just don't prioritize them. And so that's where you run into issues too. Beyond the, the phishing attacks and the social engineering attacks that you see, it's also just bad configurations and not having the awareness and the training necessary to prevent that from happening. And in research in particular, there's also that need to collaborate. So does that create risks in itself? And you've got collaboration going on between institutions, between institutions and government, and also between both of those and industry. Absolutely. Collaboration is one of the more challenging things that security teams in every industry face. Research is one example where it's even more prevalent Um, especially because you're trying to collaborate across different uh, universities, across different research institutions. And then also it's important to consider that you may just be looking for sources that aren't related to your university or another university at all. And so you need to be sure that those sources are legitimate. And that in particular is where you can start to run into trouble. A lot of the attacks that we see targeting research and educational institutions are all based on pretext. They're reached out to by an attacker who has crafted a phishing email in order to get them um, to either follow up with them or have a conversation or transfer money to them. And if you're doing research, you're, of course, a naturally curious person. You want to have those connections in the industry so you can make sure your research is comprehensive. And if you mistakenly are having this conversation with a bad actor, it could end up in a cyber attack for you. And so this is a really important point. And I'm glad that you mentioned it because that collaboration is so critical, but also needs to come with some boundaries and some Uh, best practices to make sure that these people are validated as being credible sources and also not potential attackers trying to manipulate you into falling for a cyber attack. Absolutely, because the culture of openness and sharing your results, sharing your research, peer review, uh, doesn't necessarily work or sit so well with the culture of containment and blocking access, which which is required for good cybersecurity. Definitely. And there are ways to manage this. It's not a, oh, you need to stop collaboration altogether. But it's important that we do manage it appropriately, because just as that research, you, these people have committed so much time and so much energy to it. They want to share it in their own way. They don't want someone to come and take it from them. And so we need to make sure that we're giving them the means to protect it and then also to share it the way that they want to share it. How then would an organization in this sector go about improving their security, given the constraints on budget and also how they need to work? What have you seen out there that seems to be effective? There are a few quick wins that research institutions and educational institutions can have, uh, assuming that they do not require them already. And then there's also a longer term strategy we recommend to every organization that is genuinely particularly applicable to educational institutions and to research institutions. 
when it comes to a short-term strategy, things like enforcing multi-factor authentication and enforcing strong passwords for all faculty, all researchers, all students, that can help tremendously. It seems like such a small step. It can be a ton of work, but it really does help protect um, your students and researchers and staff. Another thing that's very important is to consider blocking unusual attachment types like .exe or .ps1 files. This is important because depending on the research institution, they probably don't need access to these files and um, they're often used by attackers in order to deploy malware. So this one is gonna be of course very specific to the organization and their research needs, but whenever possible, blocking file types that are known to be used for malware and that your team doesn't usually use is going to be a huge benefit. And then also security training, especially when it comes to spotting and preventing phishing attacks, that should be mandatory for all faculty, for all staff, for researchers and for students. I think of it a lot like at MIT where they require a swim test to graduate. There should be phishing training required to be at the institution in order to prevent attacks like these. In light of the recent ransomware attacks, another important thing to note is that it's critical to set up a consistent patching schedule and maintain on-site and off-site backups that are regularly updated. This is, of course, a joint effort with the IT team. And one thing that's worth noting is that, in particular at research institutions, it may be valuable to have different sets of backups for different groups, like research versus staff, different research teams, etc. For more sensitive research, it's also really important to consider segmenting your network so that research, specific research orgs or research entirely can have that added layer of protection and specificity where they're allowed to access certain resources because they are research where others on the network can necessarily interact with them. That way, research teams are privileged users that can access that network and, and, and have a, a bit more privacy and a bit more contained environment. In addition, uh, given the breaches that we're seeing via these spun up databases on an ad hoc basis, it's really important that there are procedures that are set up by security teams that researchers know that they have to follow when setting up databases that house sensitive information, especially around configuration changes and preventing them from getting access to the internet without um, a legitimate user. Longer term, it's really important to consider moving to a zero trust strategy. Given the dynamics at play, both at research and educational institutions, I honestly consider this to be imperative. Educational services and research are unique just like we've been talking about because of that constant fluctuating user base. And they simply can't really get away with a more static approach to security operations. But by following a never trust, always verify approach, you're able to not only make the whole process easier for your end users, but also make it secure and build in layers of security controls to prevent any malicious activity from spreading if it 
does get into the network. So potentially then a more finely tuned approach to security so that they can tailor what they're doing according to the needs of the research group or the student body. Um, But at a higher level, should governments be doing more to protect these institutions considering the value of the research they carry out? And is that something where government can have influence? So I think it's a great question. Uh, There have been talks about preventing cyber attacks against things like critical infrastructure and, of course, healthcare. To be honest, I think that those really come down to a lot of posturing at this point. There's no way to prevent other nation states from doing these attacks um, unless you're ready to escalate to some form of kinetic warfare. And at this point, it does not seem like different countries are are ready to take that next step. And I, I'm, I wouldn't necessarily advise that next step. And this even goes for, for cyber criminals. It, it's one thing to say, hey, the U.S. is saying that you can't target our healthcare systems anymore. But the reality is that doesn't always work. And in fact, it probably never works because it's so difficult to attribute these attacks. It's so difficult to find the original bad actors and arrest them or stop them. So the best approach that I'm seeing right now is through the executive order that the um, Biden administration released a couple of months ago now, which really outlines and begins to outline what the federal government needs to do from a cybersecurity standpoint. And it's with support of, of course, the Department of Homeland Security, CISA, and um, the Federal Office of um, Management and Budget. That is really starting to serve as a blueprint for what other organizations, especially those working with the government, need to be doing. And there's language in that executive order that points to the fact that while this is currently focused around the federal government, it's likely that there will be some form of regulation that applies to those working with the government in the private sector as well. So I absolutely expect that research institutions will need to meet a certain standard from a cybersecurity standpoint in the future. What the level of that standard is going to be per the federal government is still to be determined. It's absolutely one of the things that's happening right now and one of the things that research institutions should be prepared for. Ali Mellon from Forrester on whether government intervention and regulation will improve cybersecurity for the research sector. Mark Wantling is the CIO at the UK's Salford University. Salford has also seen an increase in risk and threats, especially with the increase in remote working during the last year and a half. Yes, there are more threats to the the higher education sector, research and and so on. Um, And I think there's a number of things that that are driving that. Um, And I'll I'll talk about my own experiences at at the University of Salford and what I think has has driven the increase in in threats to, to the university. And largely, I think a lot of it a lot of the increase in threats happen around that move to remote working because of COVID-19. And I guess that's not particular to, to the university sector. It affected lots of organisations in lots of different ways. Um, but we saw mass movement of staff to remote working, which increased the uh, the number of uh, opportunities for attackers. I, I guess that, um, that threat landscape significantly changed for us. 
and particularly for research organisations and obviously universities have a, a research um, focus. And for us, that was um, particularly related to COVID-19 research, where we saw uh, way back at the start of coronavirus and the pandemic being targeted, universities and research institutions being targeted by nation state threat actors trying to identify research that was happening and looking to exploit university networks to get access to that particular research. So that was a new threat we'd perhaps not seen as much of, um, but, but absolutely we've seen a, a significant increase as well as the, the flip side of that, seeing a significant increase in financial, financially motivated threat actors, particularly targeting HE sector over the last couple of years. Has that now stabilised or are we still seeing quite high levels of potential attacks? I, I think we're still seeing very high levels of, of attacks. I think what was highlighted through nation state um, threat actors targeting universities through COVID-19 research was that universities were seen as, as relative soft targets. And when you consider the complexity of university networks, but also the sensitive nature of the research that happens on those networks for some some very large, uh, complex organisations, I think threat actors have seen that as a, a potential easy way in to, to access information and also to hold that information to ransom. Do we have any information about the motivations and attribution of these attacks? Is it possible to even get into that level of detail? I think in some cases it is. Um, so, you know, way back at the start of the pandemic, um, we, we saw heavy scanning of our, of our perimeter from uh, Russian-sponsored state threat actors, for example. And we know that their motivation was particularly COVID-19 vaccine research. Um, we've seen probing from uh, Chinese-sponsored uh, threat actors. And again, that's usually particularly related to research around technology, for example. Um, and then we, we constantly see probing of our networks and, and attempts to breach our network from financially motivated threat actors. So the more traditional ransomware type um, threat actors. And again, we've we've seen a massive uptick in that uh, targeting HE, particularly in the UK, but across the globe as well over those last 12 months. And those financially motivated threat actors have been successful, unfortunately, on a number of occasions. And I guess there's the whole debate about should an organisation pay or not pay the ransomware? And, and if they do, if they do pay that ransom, then what kind of precedence does that set going forwards? But again, before we get into the detail of ransomware, perhaps, uh, is there a change in the type of attacks that you're seeing and what are the nature of the attacks and the attempts to get through your systems? So honestly, I think the majority of the attacks are still around the, the basics. So, you know, lots of times they're starting with, with phishing attacks, for example. We're seeing compromised credentials being shared quite widely on the dark web. And, um, you know, we're, we're not seeing, certainly from my perspective, anything more complex or complicated than we might have traditionally seen. I think it's just that there's lots more opportunities that exist out there now partly because of the, the remote working. But I think, again, the university networks are complex and perhaps underprotected. And so I don't think we're seeing more complex attacks. I just think we're seeing a higher volume, a higher frequency, and perhaps a better understanding from the threat actors of how to exploit uh, higher education and, and research networks. And certainly with ransomware, we've seen organisations being targeted. They don't necessarily have to be very large. There have been some very large payouts. But again, perhaps the bulk of the cases are relatively asking relatively small sums of money and they're targeting relatively poorly protected organizations is that again where you're seeing it in the he sector that potentially 
whether rightly or wrongly, the sector is seen as being a bit weaker on security than perhaps commercial organisations and therefore an easier target. The HE sector is absolutely seen as a, as a bit of a soft target. And university networks are, I suppose, unique in a way in that um, there's, there's lots of endpoints, there's lots of potential shadow IT across the organisation. Um, you know, universities are, are built on information sharing and um, and creating knowledge, and that's valuable to, to attackers. Uh, but the, the nature, certainly, of the, the network at the University of Salford is that it's grown fairly organically over the last 10 to 15 years without too much architecture and, and control, and that's led to lots of gaps and opportunities for those threat actors and largely is the basics that are missing and um, you look at even some of the the larger scale attacks that you talked about on big commercial organizations the majority of the time those attacks didn't come about because of some kind of complex new zero day vulnerability it came about because the basics weren't in place and again that's certainly true of the University of Salford and the the journey that we've been on over the last two years it's all been about getting the basics right and hence a lot of the work that we've been doing with Tainium is to make sure we have those basics in place and I think that's what what I've seen from from colleagues across the, the higher education sector is where they've had problems it's because those basics have been missing. I suppose that's part of it isn't it when you talk about things developing in an organic way there isn't necessarily that central push to move everything onto a new platform that there might be in a commercial business but also the fact that the operating principle of a university or a research institution is rather different you're you're there to to create knowledge and to share it whereas a commercial organization is to create knowledge and to keep that under wraps until it can be exploited so does that lead to quite a different approach to security and indeed does it mean that you have to talk to your stakeholders in a different way about it I mean, it's a great point you make that you know, we, uh, certainly the University of Salford, we've got 20,000 students, 2,500 members of staff, and largely we're focused on teaching and learning. So that's our core part of our business, but obviously have a significant part of, um, of our business, which is research-related as well. And so unlike most commercial organisations that perhaps have a very small research and development department, I have tens if not hundreds of research and development departments that exist within each of the specialisms within the university and with that comes a need for them to have complete flexibility to be able to develop that research and whether that's um, you know having certain levels of access within the network whether it's having access to high performance compute for example whether it's been able to do um, slightly more interesting things so we obviously have a, a computer science department who do teach students and carry out research related to ransomware and cyber attacks and defending uh, networks as well. So allowing research to happen within the network, but putting those parameters around it to allow it to happen in a safe and secure way is very, very complicated and perhaps more complicated than any other organisation that I've I've ever worked in. You don't always have that scale of research where you have to allow those freedoms to happen, but within a safe environment. And so you're right, that that leads to very different conversations with uh, with academics, with with staff, with students. Uh, And it's almost having to split that thinking out into two two halves. The first one is how do we enable teaching and learning in a safe and secure way? And that's much like a a college or a school, for example. Well, then how on the same network do we allow our researchers to carry out cutting edge research without limiting them 
because of the controls and systems that we put in place. And so the conversations always have to have, uh, always have to bear in mind the two sides of that same coin, that we need to provide safe, safe, secure environments, but have the flexibility to allow researchers to do the work that they need to do to continue to progress our knowledge and research and, and the information that we um, that we use to inform our teaching and learning. Where then do you focus your investment? Um, so I think, again, for me, it's, it's back to basics. Um, we are coming, certainly from the University of Salford's perspective, from a long way back in terms of our level of maturity. We're having to just make sure that we get the basics right. And over the last two or three years, uh, we've been improving that significantly. But before then, we, we haven't had the basics right. And we've had uh, commissioned pen tests over the last few years, which have highlighted some very significant gaps. And you mentioned the NHS, for example. We carried out penetration tests just 18 months ago when identified that we were still vulnerable to the blue keep uh, vulnerability that was part of the WannaCry issue with, with the NHS. And that just led to highlighting even further that we just didn't have some of those basic controls in place. And there's no point in having the latest and greatest tech or, or the best teams if you can't just deliver the basics. So if you don't know what assets you've got and you're not patching them and you're not securing them and you've not got visibility of those assets, then there's no point in having all of the bells and whistles. You need to know what you've got and you need to be able to secure it, patch it and take control of it. Well, indeed. So in terms of your two to three years program of bringing the the technology up to date, bringing the networks into a more secure fashion. Um, what have you found that's worked for yourselves and, and what still needs to be done? The successes that we've had, I guess we've we've got the board involved in understanding the level of risk that comes with cybersecurity and that changing threat landscape. So that hadn't happened previously. Uh, and I've been CIO there for two years now we've started to get the board more involved in understanding the threats that we face and how we're mitigating those threats. But we have a realistic view of the the risk that we're facing because we have a or come from a very low position in terms of maturity of cybersecurity. So they're on board, they understand the journey that we're on. I think that's really important to start with. Um, we have buy-in and support from the board and a very clear understanding of the journey that, that we're on. Um, coupled with that, implementing those basics. And, and the one that concerned me the most at the start of this journey was our lack of ability to patch systems in a timely manner. And that's when we we started the conversations with Tanium uh, to try and, one, drive that visibility of systems that we have. And I'll give you a very uh, quick example. Um, I went to my team and said, okay, give me a basic understanding of how many assets we've got across the estate. And the number ranged from 4,000 to 4,500 We've deployed Tanium and it's it's now scanning all of our, our endpoints and discovering additional endpoints. And the reality is we've got near 6,000. So there was you know, between 1,500 and 2,000 assets out there connected to the network that we didn't even know about. And if we don't know about them, we can't secure them. And then we've evolved that piece to then start to patch them. And when we deployed the Tanium platform, again, some, some quite scary statistics, as we deployed the platform, we had 38,000 missing critical patches across the estate. So that doesn't even take into account high, medium, low. Uh, that is just missing critical patches. And, and that, for me, is, is massively scary. 
And what we've been able to do, again, through, through using Tanium in the platform, is drive that patching cadence. So we've gone from patching critical patches, would have taken us between four and six weeks previously. We're now doing it in 24 hours. And we're doing it with less people than we were previously because we've driven automation of the basics. And we now have confidence that we're doing the basics well. And I'm now able to provide reporting and visibility to the board. And again, part of taking them on that journey, here's the size of the problem that we've got. This is what we're going to do about it. And this is how we're going to monitor our progress towards that end goal. So they're now gaining confidence in our ability to deliver, to improve on basic information security practices because I'm able to share dashboards with them to show that we're making that progress. So last... 12, 18 months in particular has really been about driving the improvement in patching. It's just one of those basics. The other half of the work that we've been doing has been really on trying our best to secure our end user accounts. So multi-factor authentication, for example, and then really close monitoring of the activity of those accounts to try and spot early indicators of compromise on them. And that's been our focus, secure the assets and secure the user accounts as best we possibly can. And what lessons then have you learned that you could share through that process and also through the, the last 18 months and the experience with COVID and the pandemic as well? The first one is that in that improvement of information security that I've been driving over the last two or three years, absolutely tooling is important and, and the process are important, but you can't lose sight of the fact that organisational culture plays a massive part in improving information security. Now, that could be culture within the information security team and how they operate within the IT department or, or whichever department they sit in, but also the culture across the organisation and its understanding of the role that everybody within the organisation plays with within good infosec practices and um, so I get, that was for me one of the, the big lessons learned you, you can't just throw technology and money at it and and even if you throw tech at it and improve some of the processes there still exists a need to drive culture change within the organization to drive that improvement as well so that that's the first one and, and the second one again the biggest lesson i've learned is having the board on board, understanding the level of risk and the changing threat landscape and having a vehicle to provide that update to them on a regular basis has, has been hugely important. That InfoSec threat landscape is, is changing so quickly that I, I need to go back every month and provide the board an update on how it's changed, what's changing and what we're doing to respond to those new threats that are emerging. Mark Wantling on the need to keep boards informed of the changing cybersecurity landscape. Regular updates help keep security on the agenda, and improvements in information security depend on organisational culture as well as on technology. Universities, he argues, are no exception. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. Our next programme will be on Wednesday, September the 22nd, when we'll look at the latest State of Information Security report from the CIISP. I hope you can join us then. In the meantime, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and of course on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again to our guests, and thank you for listening. <laughs>